Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Fixing Chicago, the podcast focused on what right looks like and how to achieve peace, educate the kids, restore vitality, and reinvent Chicago for success into and through the 21st century. Today, we are excited and proud to present a Chicagoan Captain Retired Rom Stevens, a physician and anesthesiologist, as our special guest. And he's got an incredible story to share with us on his recent uh, his recent involvements. Uh, Dr. Stevens. Good morning, uh, Dr. Roach. How are you this morning? I'm very well, thank you. Thank you for coming on to this podcast. Well, thank you for offering me the opportunity to talk about my recent experiences as a medical volunteer in Ukraine. Well, it's going to be really exciting. Um, there's a large Ukrainian population within Chicago. I'm sure they'll be very interested. And and um, as a subject, it's of tremendous importance and interest throughout the whole country. So if we can, can we start um, at the beginning, just a little bit about yourself so the audience can know who is speaking to them? Uh, where were you Where were you born and raised? Sure. Uh, so Paul, very briefly, I was uh, born in Milwaukee and raised in Kenosha, which you know is just north of the Illinois-Wisconsin state line up in Packer territory, and I uh, was educated at the University of Wisconsin in Madison, uh, undergraduate as well as medical school at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health. Graduated in 1982, performed my internship at uh, St. Luke's Hospital in Milwaukee, and uh, subsequently completed anesthesia and anesthesia residency at the University of Colorado at Denver, including a fellowship at the University of Dusseldorf, and uh, I should mention that my Navy, my Navy scholarship, which I was awarded when I started medical school, paid for my medical education. And uh, because of that, I owed the Navy four years of uh, payback time, which I did at uh, served at the National Naval Medical Center, uh, as it was called at that time in uh, Bethesda, Maryland, now renamed uh, the Walter Reed National Military Center. I served there four years, including a tour uh, afloat uh, in the Mediterranean in 1987 and left active duty in uh, 1990 and joined the Navy Reserve. Stayed uh, active in the Navy Reserve until my retirement in 2014. Now, when you were in the Navy, what kinds of experiences did you have that would prepare you for what you experienced out in the Ukraine? Sure. Well, uh, first of all, um, during my, my time as a reservist, I was a medical officer for various Marine Corps units, including the Chicago Marines, Infantry Battalion, 2nd Battalion, 24th Marines, uh, formerly headquartered on Foster Avenue in the north side. I subsequently served as the 24th Marines Regimental Surgeon in Kansas City, the 4th Marine Division Surgeon in New Orleans during the Iraq uh, in Afghanistan campaigns, I commanded the 4th Medical Battalion, which is the Reserve Medical Battalion of the Marine Corps, uh, headquartered at uh, San Diego, and uh, subsequently was recalled to active duty as the 1st Marine Expeditionary Force Surgeon in Camp Pendleton, where I deployed again to Iraq for the second time. While I was there, I helped construct the medical plan, uh, medical support plan for the Marines as they were planning to go back into Afghanistan in 2008 and 2009. I did then a, 
a critical care fellowship at uh, University of Maryland, Baltimore Shock Trauma, and then subsequently deployed to Afghanistan for my real fellowship. And uh, that time was exposed to quite a bit of trauma. We had probably six or eight uh, serious casualties uh, every week for uh, the entire period of my time, my seven months in Afghanistan. Uh, after coming home, I returned to my reserve unit and uh, my reserve position, which was deputy fleet surgeon for the U.S. 6th Fleet, is based in Naples and had the responsibility for medical support of naval activities in Europe and Africa. My uh, commander at that time, later Rear Admiral Tom Reck, asked me to go to Odessa, Ukraine, to support uh, an annual exercise with the Ukrainians called Seabreeze. And uh, that was my first exposure to Ukraine. That was in 2011, and I went back in 2012. Became very familiar with the Ukrainian military system, their medical system. Made many friends in the Ukrainian Navy. And subsequently, uh, I mentioned that my unit was involved in support for Africa. And I got became involved in... Uh, in prevention of malaria and other transmissible diseases in Navy reservists that were supporting exercises in Sub-Saharan Africa. So I developed an expertise in uh, tropical medicine and preventive medicine. And that led to uh, my selection in uh, 2013 as the uh, force surgeon for the uh, combined uh, Joint Task Force Horn of Africa which commands all the U.S. forces in East Africa and is headquartered in Djibouti, a small former French colony located on the Red Sea, very close to where uh, Africa almost touches the Arabian Peninsula. So it's a strategic uh, geographical location. And one of the uh, hottest spots on the planet, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, yes, we often had uh, temperatures exceeding 130 degrees. Uh, Man. Daily basis. But that didn't deter us from running every day. We ran five kilometers every day uh, in the evening. At any rate, I spent uh, a year in Djibouti as the senior medical officer for the U.S. forces in East Africa. And um, that was, uh, I came home in 2014, shortly after the Russians had invaded Crimea. Uh, and uh, many of my friends uh, in the Ukrainian Navy were, of course, affected, directly affected by that invasion because the Ukrainian naval base was co-located with the Russian naval base in Sevastopol in, uh, in Crimea. And the Russians captured the base and captured almost the entire Ukrainian Navy, uh, captured or sunk it. And that was in 2014. So I retired from the Navy. Uh, that year and uh, went back to my civilian career at the James A. Lovell, Captain James A. Lovell Hospital in North, uh, North Chicago, where you and I served together. And uh, subsequently, I worked uh, for the Advocate Aurora system, both in Chicago and in Milwaukee and Kenosha, uh, as an intensivist and anesthesiologist. And I'm continuing to work as a, an intensivist in the tele-ICU for Advocate Aurora providing uh, ICU consultations uh, for probably uh, 35 some hospitals in uh, Wisconsin, Illinois, and other states. Well, that is simply an amazing career path and uh, couldn't prepare you better for what you're doing now. All of that, that time deployed and, and those different 
roles that you've served under must uh, must help you right now. So, Ron, before we get into what brought you into the Ukraine at present, if it's all right, we'll just take a few minutes for our audience to kind of review a background on the Ukraine conflict. I think that uh, we'll begin with just saying that Ukraine is physically situated between Russia and Western Europe. It's massive. Uh, it was a major battlefield in World War I, uh, in the Russian Revolution, in World War II. You know, some would say that nobody suffered more than the Ukraine in, in Europe or in the world in this past century or two. There were tremendous atrocities uh, under the Stalinist era in the area of the Ukraine post-World War II. And then once the USSR was dissolving, in 1991, the Ukrainian parliament declared independence. This was actually the second time they had tried. Uh, and this is their formal Independence Day, August 4th. In 1992, NATO contemplated adding Ukraine to Central and Eastern European members, which, you know, I think is important. And it's important to understand from Ukraine's perspective what they would like, but it also threatened Russia. In 1994, there was a Budapest memorandum between Ukraine, US, UK, and Russia, because at the time it had the third largest stockpile of nuclear weapons. And those nukes were traded away for guarantees on their own sovereignty, which Russia is not honoring at present. Um, it's also a bad example uh, for other would-be nuclear powers throughout the world. In 2004, the Orange Revolution, uh, which could be an episode all on its own, but uh, there was basically a Russian-backed candidate named uh, Yanukovych, and there was an independent one named, uh, I think it's Yukashenko. Is that how you pronounce it? Yukashenko? Yes. And the Russian one was, uh, let's see, that's when Yukashenko got poisoned, right? Yes. With uh, Digitalis. So, uh, I'm not sure what the poison poison was. I think it was a dioxin, actually. Okay. Well, he got... Uh, he got poisoned right before the election, and the people revolted and you know reinstated him uh, afterwards. Well, they elected him to office. Or I should say elected him to office. And there was another country that did the same. Uh, what was the other color revolution? Well, Georgia. That was, uh, that was Georgia. At the same time, also another former Soviet uh, republic that uh, wanted to uh, free itself from Russian influence. And is right. uh, in many ways, uh, similar to Ukraine in the sense that it uh, wants to become part of NATO. The Russians have also, in 2008, they invaded parts of, uh, of Georgia, uh, South Ossetia, claiming that they were protecting Russian minorities uh, from the Georgian majority. And uh, the Russian troops have, to this day, uh, continued to occupy parts of uh, Georgian Republic. Uh, and there's a frozen conflict there, very similar to what the Russians did in uh, 2014 in the Donbass in Ukraine. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We, uh, we deployed with uh, a bunch of the Georgians. It was uh, fascinating to, to sit at a table and listen to them describe the history. But to stay on target, I'll go. I'll stick with Ukraine for now. Let's see. In uh, 2008, NATO promises a compromise, which just says we will bring you in, but we don't have a timeline. I think we can skip over to maybe 2013. 
Yanukovych doesn't sign the EU agreement, and then protesters occupy Kiev's downtown, and a hundred are killed by police. Yes, um, that's the, the square, the Maiden Revolution, that started in November of 2013. And then, as soon as that, oh, sorry, resulted in over over a hundred deaths of uh, the Ukrainian freedom protesters that were uh, killed by police, many by snipers from rooftops. Wow. Wow. And as soon as that chaos happened, that's when Russian soldiers appear in the Crimean Peninsula, although initially Putin denied they were his, but then later on he admitted and was very proud of it. And they took over the Crimean Peninsula and by March of 2014, quote unquote, voted to join Russia. In 2014, 40,000 troops also invaded the Donbass region. And they also declared independence from Ukraine. And the Donbass, Ram, if you would describe it geographically, it's a, it's a place of great strategic importance to Russia. And yes. that's because it, it offers a land bridge. Well, so first of all, the Donbass is located in the far eastern uh, parts of Ukraine uh, and, and consists of two provinces, Luhansk province and Donetsk province. And the two of them together are considered the area of Donbass. And in the mid-19th century, they, uh, that area was developed as an industrial area uh, because of its coal and water supplies uh, and iron ore availability. There were uh, a number of manufacturing plants that were built, steel plants that were built in that area. And so it became an economic powerhouse for uh, then the Russian Empire, uh, today Ukraine. The people there uh, are Ukrainians, but uh, oftentimes uh, speak Russian as their first language uh, because they're located very close to Russia and for uh, many hundreds of years were part of the Russian Empire. This area, however, was uh, traditionally part of Ukraine and, uh, and a lot of the customs, the dress and music, uh, religious customs are all the Ukrainian. So Putin uh, used the fact that they they spoke Russian as an excuse and claimed that they, uh, the Ukrainians were committing genocide against the uh, Russian speakers in that area, which was uh, false, uh, demonstrably false, uh, and um, invaded first using uh, supporters of of, this, uh, of Russia, the Ukrainian supporters and then later using Russian troops to occupy Ukrainian territory. And that territory is still occupied today and is still probably the most hotly contested area in Ukraine. South of that area, Crimea was uh, connected to southern Ukraine by a land bridge. Of course, the Russians wanted to, uh, for strategic reasons, create a land connection between uh, Crimea and, uh, and the Donbass there territories that they'd occupied in the Donbass. And so uh, when the Russians invaded Ukraine on uh, February 24th, uh, 2022, one of their uh, immediate goals was to create a land bridge between Crimea uh, and the Donbass. And that's why first one of the first cities they took was Kherson in the south, which is a port city in the Black Sea. And then, of course, uh, the battle over Mariupol which is a port city and the Sea of Azov. Uh, and you're very familiar with the, uh, with the story about the, the Battle of Mariupol and the Azov Battalion. 2014 and 2015 were the Minsk I and II agreements trying to create peace. 
but those both failed. Some say beginning 2016, but I've heard on other podcasts that probably since 2012 or, or earlier began uh, the Russian cyber attacks where it saturated the um, cyberspace with false information and uh, complete fabrications in order to uh, mentally prepare people for what it was about to do. These cyber attacks, by the way, should be of tremendous importance to everyone in Western Europe and the United States because they have been going on ever since. Something like 65% of all the extremist posts on social media in the United States are actually Russian bots. And they're very causative or they're an aggravating factor for the polarization that we experience today. And it's a big deal in Europe. They also do targeted cyber attacks against individuals. But anyway, to stay on pace, in 2019, Zelensky, the current uh, Ukrainian, is he president or prime minister? President was elected. He vows peace. This was the very famous uh, episode where U.S. President Donald Trump blocked the aid to Ukraine and then asked for a favor. In 2021, Russia assembles 100,000 troops around Ukraine's borders. Uh, Zelensky begs NATO for a membership plan. This doesn't happen. Putin, you know, declares a variety of uh, things, all of which are false. And his he's got a uh, a distorted sense of history. And he declares, you know, that they're going to have a special military operation in the Ukraine, which is essentially just a war. All right, now we'll turn it over to Dr. Stevens and 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 figure out how is it that you got involved in coming to the Ukraine? So on February 24th, Russians started their war of aggression against Ukraine. I was skiing in Colorado with a good friend of mine, another retired Navy captain, Lee White. And we were um, fixed, fixed to the television, uh, watching the uh, television coverage of the invasion. Of course, we knew it was coming because the U.S. and British intelligence had been predicting it for weeks. So it was no surprise really to anyone. But at that point, uh, we had a plan to go sailing um, from uh, Washington State up to Alaska uh, with Captain Rocky Kerr, another friend of ours, also a retired Navy medical officer. <clears throat> and Rocky and I talked on the phone and we realized that we couldn't go on vacation while young men and innocent civilians were dying in Ukraine, considering that we had uh, some skills, military medical skills that might be useful to the Ukrainians. So we canceled our plans to go sailing and started planning to travel to Ukraine. We bought plane tickets to Munich. We looked around for an NGO to sponsor us. We found one. We made contact with the Ukraine Ministry of Health that had put out a call for medical volunteers help and we uh, took a train from Poland to Ukraine to Lviv uh, which is the cultural capital of western Ukraine located about 70 kilometers uh, east of the Polish border and there we made contact with the Ministry of Health officials at the first Lviv Medical Union which is a union of three hospitals uh, three large teaching hospitals in Lviv uh, and made, met the hospital administrators and the medical director, as well as uh, Professor uh, Martino Letz, 
who is uh, Natalia Martinoletz, is the Professor of Anesthesia and Critical Care and the Chair of the Critical Care and Anesthesia Departments at, at the Lviv Medical Union. And we started giving lectures and making rounds in the hospitals uh, and finding ways to, uh, to help the Ukrainians. Realizing that we, at that point, had uh, almost no language skills uh, in Ukrainian language, um, we were able to work with uh, English-speaking residents and junior faculty uh, who spoke some English uh, to try uh, to figure out how best to help the Ukrainians uh, without getting in their way. Well, can you tell me, what were your initial impressions when you got there? What was your first thought when you're looking around? Well, you know, physically and architecturally, the city of Lviv looks very much like a Central European city. Uh, it was part of the Habsburg Empire for 150 years or so, uh, and part of Poland before and after that. So it's really very much culturally uh, part of Central Europe. The people in the culture is very much Central European, the architecture uh, is largely uh, from the 19th century. The Habsburgs, I think, spent a lot of time and effort and money uh, building infrastructure, including universities, medical schools, hospitals, civic buildings, the opera house, the theater. Uh, these structures are all uh, uh, intact and have been maintained and renovated by the Ukrainians. But it looks very much like Central Europe, like what you, would, what you know from Prague and Krakow, uh, Breslau. And what were, um, how were you received by the people? Well, very well. The Ukrainians uh, were very welcoming. They were uh, quite glad that we were there. Uh, obviously, we had some language uh, barriers to overcome, but we were able to communicate and we uh, spent uh, time trying to learn their medical system and learn their, their culture and their language and I think they were very appreciative of those efforts. Uh, although in two months our ability to uh, speak the language and understand the culture is, uh, is limited uh, by time. However, in that time we made some very close personal, uh, personal friendships with Ukrainians mainly the doctors, medical medical professionals, and uh, got to know them personally, they, us. And, uh, it must be a fascinating time to be there. Yes. Uh, how, are you, how are you able to help? Well, I think, you know, first of all, to understand the situation, I think a lot of American organizations probably mis misunderstand the, the nature of the of the problems. And uh, although, you know, in the east, close to the uh, Donbass front, there's been a lot of destruction, including uh, in and around the capital, Kiev and uh, Chernihiv, which is the city uh, close to the Belarusian border north of Kiev. Those cities, and particularly Kharkiv, which is the number two city located about 30 miles uh, west of the Russian border, uh, have been heavily damaged by uh, by artillery uh, shelling, by air attacks, by cruise missile attacks, and by direct attacks from Russian ground forces. And so those areas, a lot of the people have fled. They're 
troops, uh, over 6 million internally displaced Ukrainians, uh, and uh, over 5 million uh, Ukrainians have left the country and are uh, today largely uh, refugees in Poland and uh, Romania. Uh, the Ukrainian President uh, Zelensky declared martial law at the beginning of the war, which uh, precluded any of the military-age Ukrainian males from leaving the country. And so all of the refugees are women and children and old people. And largely they've stayed close to Ukraine. They've stayed in neighboring countries because they plan to go back uh, to their homeland as soon as possible. Uh, and their, their men are back in Ukraine, uh, either fighting in the army or uh, doing other, other jobs, uh, that are supporting the war effort. So I'm sorry, I've lost the track here. <laughs> well, it's just interesting. I'm, I'm just fascinated hearing the story. Just trying to get a sense of the people of the Ukrainian medical system and where you are able to fit in and, and you know, make some, add some value to the whole equation. Yeah, so that's a good question. So the, the medical system is basically a post-Soviet system. The physical structures were built largely uh, during the time of the Soviet Union, although there are some pre-existing structures built by the Habsburgs and the Poles that have been renovated, of course, over the subsequent years. In 2016, the previous president, Poroshenko, appointed a woman who was an American-Ukrainian named Dr. Yolana Supra acting Minister of Health and from 2016 to 2019 she did her best to reform the medical system and to try to put it on track uh, to bring its standards up to those of uh, Western Central and Western Europe because obviously the, the Ukrainians would very much like to be part of the European Union and would like to get their governmental systems up to the level of those found in other countries in the EU and I believe that uh, Dr. Supran did her best to, to reform the medical system, but she didn't have adequate time. In 2019, when President Zelensky was elected, he uh, replaced all the members of the cabinet, all the ministers. And since then, I believe that there's uh, been four subsequent health ministers. The initial uh, plans uh, were carried out by the subsequent health ministers to continue reforming the system, but in 2020, COVID-19 pandemic hit Ukraine uh, and for the next two years uh, really consumed a huge amount of resources from the healthcare system. They had experience very similar to ours where they had to greatly expand the number of beds and ICU beds that they had. Uh, they had hundreds of thousands of patients on ventilators. Uh, most of them died um, uh, despite the um, expenditure of a huge amount of resources. So very similar to our experience. Very similar to ours. I mean, even in the U.S., most of the COVID patients who ended up on a ventilator yes, did not survive it. Wow. And then when they were finally done with COVID, then on February 24th, 2022, the war started, which destroyed a number of their hospitals, forced a lot of their medical personnel in the east to flee west. I mentioned caused a huge displacement of people, the largest displacement of people since the end of second, the Second World War. 
in Europe. And they targeted, the, the hospitals were targeted by missiles. They, in, in Kharkiv, in Mariupol, for sure. There was a maternity hospital in uh, Mariupol that was destroyed. Of course, the Russians destroyed almost the entire city of Mariupol. Well, that's their but MO, any... isn't it? You know, they uh, whether you're talking Chechnya and Grozny or Syria, you know, they, they first will have an invasion and it doesn't go very well. Then they just come back and level the place, bring it down to dust. Yeah, that seems to be the modus operandi of the Russian military since, since the Second World War. Yeah. They have ignored the laws of war, the Geneva Conventions, as far as treatment of civilians, uh, treatment of prisoners of war. Uh, they recently, there's evidence that they, within the last few days, murdered uh, 50 prisoners of war, survivors of the uh, Azov Regiment that uh, were the defenders of Mariupol. President Biden declared uh, Vladimir Putin a war criminal, didn't he? With the atrocities that occurred around Kiev and every single place that they uncover, they find evidence of, of war crimes. The Russians are clearly trying, attempting to erase Ukrainian culture, statehood. The Russian empire attempted for centuries to suppress the Ukrainian language uh, and their culture, and in Soviet times, suppress their religion. Uh, most of the, in Western Ukraine, in the Lviv and Ternopol, Ivano-Franskis uh, Oblast, uh, which are like states in the United States. The majority of the religion is is uh, Eastern Catholic uh, or Greco-Catholic Church, which came uh, from the time of Polish control of that part of the world, and uh, is really a Eastern Rite uh, Catholic Church uh, that owes its allegiance to Rome. That is the majority of the citizens of Lviv belong to that church. Uh, that church was suppressed by the Soviets from 1945, really until the time of Perestroika and uh, Glasnost under uh, President Gorbachev. At the end of the Soviet Union, the church uh, came out of the shadows, came out of the underground, and after independence was able to reclaim a number of its churches which uh, in some cases have been used as uh, warehouses uh, and neglected uh, for uh, almost 50 years. Uh, and the church is very, very vibrant today. I can, I can attest to that by personal experience. And, and this, this must be why the Ukrainians are fighting so valiantly, is they all remember only too well the ceaseless atrocities that were visited upon them you know, in recent past, the, you know, the reign of Hitler was very short, but Stalin's reign was, was very long. And whether it was the starvation of the Ukrainians or the endless uh, secret police arrests or just the, you know, moving people to collectivizations and whatnot, they have suffered incredibly under rule by their neighbors and they do not want to go back to that. No, and it, it didn't start with the Bolsheviks or the communists. Uh, it started under the uh, under the czars. Under the czars, okay. Yeah. And to some extent, they were suppressed uh, by the poles, particularly in the interwar period uh, between the first and second world wars, when that that part of Ukraine was part of the second Polish Republic. Oh, uh, oh, okay. 
I must say uh, that uh, the recent actions of the Polish people towards the Ukrainians have just been phenomenal. Oh, that's awesome. They have taken in uh, over 4 million uh, Ukrainian refugees. Think and, of it, 4 million. That's bigger than Chicago. Yes. Uh, well, Chicago City. Yes. Yeah, well, there's a city. Size of Metro Chicago, the population of Warsaw has increased by 17%. And uh, do you know how many refugee camps there are in the country of Poland? No. There are none. Because really? All of the refugees, I've been told, have been taken in by, by private individuals. And, it's amazing. Uh, but, you know, the Poles and the, and the Baltic states and, and Romania and Moldova and everyone, they see that this war is only beginning in Ukraine. And as soon as Putin, if he were to achieve anything there, he would move on to their states next. I think yep. history only yep. confirms that. Absolutely, Paul. And uh, if it weren't for the Ukrainian army right now fighting and dying in the Donbass front, the Russian army uh, would be on the borders of Poland and the Baltic states. And and, without a doubt. Well, they, what would you say are some of the... Uh, what would you say are some of the joys and sorrows that you have experienced uh, the two months that you were there that you might be able to share? Well, I think, first of all, you know, the, the interaction with the Ukrainian healthcare professionals has, has just been nothing short of phenomenal. Uh, mm -hmm. He and I were, were welcomed uh, very warmly uh, from the day we arrived until the day we departed. And, um, as I mentioned, uh, we made very, uh, very close friendships uh, and promised to return, and we hope to do so in the fall. I think that one has to be careful when one's offering advice to, uh, to another medical system, because I think it's very important to understand the, uh, the limitations of the medical system uh, as they are, and uh, also uh, understand the culture that's the uh, the background to the medical system and people there are, you know they the doctors and nurses uh, you know have the best interest of the patients at heart just like we do uh, they're trying to do their best under the limitations that they have and i think it's important to understand those limitations uh, before trying to to give advice and it's uh, always very tempting as an outside expert to come in Give advice and say, well, this is how we would do it in Chicago. And while that might be true, uh, it may not be helpful uh, to the Ukrainians because uh, the limitations that they have in terms of equipment and uh, medications, antibiotics, anesthetics, supply chain issues, uh, all of which were, are, are very serious issues right now in the entire country, have been for a while, but they've been uh, made much worse by the I think Americans have a hard time understanding the notion of medical triage because wherever they go, there's always a limitless supply of supplies and blood and staff. But like when we were in Afghanistan, I mean, you know, of course, that would be the most dramatic example, but I'm sure it's in the Ukraine. I mean, in Ukraine, I shouldn't say the Ukraine, probably triage has to be a reality, doesn't it? They don't have an infinite, infinite supply of ventilators or other kinds of well, we, we material. Really we, we, we learned that during the COVID epidemic. But oh, yeah, yeah. 
but uh, they are much more resource constrained than we are. And so they have to be uh, more careful in their use of uh, scarce resources. They have fortunately uh, received a lot of donations of, uh, of uh, pharmaceuticals from other countries in you, uh, which without which they would not be able to operate. Uh, and that includes IV fluids, antibiotics, uh, pain medications, bandages, ventilator supplies, uh, tubing, uh, suction catheters, uh, IV catheters, central lines, epidural, it's all of the, you know, et cetera. So medical supplies is a major uh, limiting factor. And, and really, I, I think that they could use some help with medical logistics. As, as you and I found out in Afghanistan, uh, logistics uh, is very important. And medical logistics, uh, understanding medical logistics is often uh, crucial in the success of a healthcare. Uh, the other thing that, that I found that was interesting is that uh, uh, Ukrainians really started learning English uh, after independence. I think English was taught in the schools during the time of the Soviet Union, but probably not uh, taken very seriously. After independence, which occurred in 1991, as you mentioned, Ukrainians started teaching English in the schools. And so today, professionals uh, over the age of 40 generally do not speak much English. Uh, so the university professors often, uh, at least in medicine, uh, do not speak or read English. And the problem is, is that most of the uh, medical literature these days is published in English. Uh, and uh, without access to the English language medical literature, I think that, that limits uh, the, the knowledge base. The uh, younger Ukrainians under the age of 40 uh, often have studied English uh, in school, uh, high school, uh, and sometimes other languages as well, such as German and Spanish and French. Uh, however, I think that, um, and I, I, I say this with some trepidation because my own command of the Ukrainian language is quite poor, although I, I hope that it gets better uh, working in that direction. But the level of fluency, English fluency in Ukraine, uh, is not what you would encounter in Germany, uh, Holland, Scandinavian countries, uh, uh, for example. And so uh, communication was uh, often, uh, is often room for miscommunication uh, and I think that um, that was probably our biggest challenge uh, was, was uh, communication. For example, uh, in making rounds in the ICU, which we did every morning, uh, I would try to uh, stand next to an English-speaking resident and, and try to you know, pick up as much as I could about discussion. Um, without some translation, would have understood nothing about uh, patients that were presented. At the end of my time there, I was able to pick up about 20%, but that's not enough. Well, I know, I know the problem very well from a different experience. I was stationed in Sicily for two years and showed up not speaking a word of Italian or, well, I knew a little Italian from college, but very little and uh, nor any Sicilian, of course. And we had a small NATO hospital and we were very reliant upon the local Sicilian medical centers for any kind of specialized care. So I was traveling around all the time, whether it was to a pediatric hospital or a neuro, anybody who needed advanced obstetrics or neurosurgical or anything, 
trauma, of course. And at first I couldn't speak anything. And I realized I was very limited in my ability to be of any use to anybody until I got some of that language down. And then, so it focused on it. And within a little while, I was pretty conversant in medical Italian, although I was still useless in terms of ordering food at a restaurant or whatnot. But I learned that it, medical Italian well enough to be functional. I imagine that's going on for you in Ukraine. You're, you're getting more comfortable in the hospital and then you get out into town and you try to talk with someone and realize you just don't have the language skills to even say anything more than hello. Well, fortunately, uh, in Europe, because of our, uh, because of the Latin uh, base of uh, medicine, that uh, Latin medical terms, uh, if they're used uh, by both parties, are, are easily understood. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. The issue is in, in Ukrainian language, as in other languages, German, for example, there are generally two sets of medical vocabulary. There's the Latin medical terms, Greek and Latin medical terms, and then there are Ukrainian medical terms. And so if they were using Greek and Latin medical terms, I would understand them, but not necessarily when they were using Ukrainian medical terms. So I see. I see. We agreed on is to, to, to speak in Latin so we could understand each other. <laughs> Amazing. For a language that's supposedly dead, it's still surprisingly alive. So who would you say who would you say is helping in your experience in in Lviv who's helping the Ukrainian medical system the most in terms of international partners Yeah well I, I want to say you know in wartime I think one of the most important things is is you know well is, uh, is first aid and care of the casualty on the field and that the Ukrainians uh, over 10 years ago adopted uh, tactical combat casualty care, TCCC, as developed by Captain Frank Butler for the Special Forces, that has been universally adopted by the U.S. Department of Defense. And we and the Canadians and the Brits have been teaching uh, TCCC as well as uh, uh, civilian NGOs uh, to the Ukrainian military since 2014. Oh, you know, I was slated twice to go there and teach that and emergency war surgery. Uh, both yes. times the the funding dried up like the week before, but uh, probably about 2015 and 2018. I think that the Ukrainians actually have been probably inundated by TCCC instructors. Uh, and I think that IFACs are, are, are very, very commonly seen amongst the Ukrainian uh, forces. IFACs, if you don't mind uh, describing. The individual first aid kits. Got it. The individual first aid kits that you and I know well from our deployments are multiple deployments. Oh, right, right. So um, I think that's the most important thing. And then, of course, transport of patients uh, from the battlefield to, uh, to the hospitals. Uh, so many of the European countries, as well as U.S. and Canada, uh, Australia have donated ambulances. Um, the Ukrainians are largely using their existing hospitals to deal with casualties in the east. So these are not generally field hospitals, but they're brick and mortar uh, Ministry of Health or Ministry of Defense hospitals. They do have a separate uh, military medical system in Ukraine with military medical hospitals. Uh, but the soldiers are often treated in uh, civilian hospitals as well. Then after the patients are stabilized, often moved west, uh, Eve or Venetia, uh, or, or other hospitals 
outside the combat zone uh, for further treatment and rehabilitation. And uh, in some cases, uh, patients have been moved to, uh, to surrounding countries, mainly Poland and Germany, uh, for specialty medical care that's not available in, uh, in Ukraine. So I, I can't tell you all of the organizations that are supplying, uh, supporting, and giving medical support for the Ukrainians, but I know that the European Union and its uh, component countries have been uh, very active in uh, supplying uh, medications, ambulances, uh, medical uh, equipment uh, to the Ukrainians. The uh, German healthcare minister was present in uh, two months ago uh, at our hospital when I met him. Uh, he was there for a presentation concerning uh, the establishment of a national rehabilitation center in Lviv to deal with some of the uh, amputees and some of the war casualties. So I think that the, the Germans and, and other EU members have been very supportive. Uh, in terms of medical doctors in, in Lviv itself, and I can only really speak for Lviv, I, I can't speak to what's going on in, in other, other cities of Ukraine. But uh, I have mainly seen uh, ex-military people, mainly US and British, probably some Canadians, but mainly English speakers. I think uh, based on my experiences in Germany, and I have, as you know, quite a few friends and family in Germany in the healthcare professions, I think that the Western Europeans are, are somewhat um, undereducated about what's going on in, in, in Ukraine and uh, perhaps not as supportive as they should be. I, I see. Oftentimes, Western Europeans are afraid to go to travel to Ukraine because they're worried about the security situation, which I can tell you, at least in Western Ukraine, was, was actually quite good. Well, what kind of, what kind of help do you think they need for instance let's say someone's listening to the podcast and they're thinking gosh this is really compelling i wish i could help how do you think either individuals or institutions here based out of the usa could help the uh the cause of the injured or the sick in ukraine well i think that the most important thing to understand is this is a, a chronically underfunded uh, an under-resourced healthcare system that is not up to the level of Western European standards. So that chronic situation has been going on for a long, long time. Uh, and now the war has stretched uh, that system uh, and stressed it by adding more patients to the system and removing some of the hospitals from the system that have been destroyed. I think that the basic underlying problem around uh, education, knowledge base, uh, as well as uh, resourcing. Uh, I think that the Ukrainian healthcare professionals, the doctors and nurses are greatly underpaid, uh, which limits their ability to join organizations and purchase access to uh, English language medical literature. I see. So I think that giving the Ukrainian doctors and nurses access to English language medical literature through our specialty societies would be very, very helpful by providing them with free or very reduced rates membership uh, for a period of 
several years uh, to allow them access to uh, English language medical literature. I think that that, that would be very helpful. I think that uh, the Western European countries continuing to supply them with pharmaceuticals is very helpful. I think they have enough doctors. Uh, uh -huh. I don't think they necessarily need more doctors. They need to pay their doctors better. I see. So they, they need support. All their efforts now have to be focused on defeating the Russian state. Right. It's existential. It's an existential fight. And it is an existential fight for European democracy. I agree. But back to your back to your question, Paul. I think that sending large numbers of American doctors over there would not be helpful. Mm -hmm. Their healthcare system is so much different than theirs. I think that sending a few a few experts in some areas that they need, particularly burn care, uh, physical and occupational therapy prosthesis, manufacture, those kinds of things are very helpful. The numbers of physical and occupational therapists are very small in the country and other resources. I think that um, many of the patients in the ICU and on the hospital floors were not mobilized uh, adequately because of a lack of uh, nurses and therapists. So I think that support through NGOs uh, of those areas would be helpful, but I think that the individuals that should go over there have to be by necessity people that are willing to work under less than ideal situation. Right. Uh, took an average, an average American doctor who's used to having everything at the snap of his fingers. Uh, that, that person would probably be very successful in this situation. Check, check. I get that. I really get it. Well, do you have any saved rounds? This has been a fascinating hour. No, I think that. You know, the, the American-Ukrainian community in Chicago has been very supportive of the Ukrainians during this war. And I, I just want to thank people in Chicago for supporting the Ukrainian efforts to defend democracy in, in Europe. And, of course, uh, my Ukrainian friends and colleagues uh, back in Ukraine just want them to know that we stand with them. America supports them as well because they're defending our values. And you taught me to say Slava Ukraini. Slava Is that right? U Slava Ukraini. <laughs> All right. And the, the answer to that, the response is Slava. And that means uh, glory to Ukraine and glory to the heroes. Excellent. Uh, I thank you, Paul, for this opportunity. Uh, thank you, Ron, for, for all that you do and for sharing it with us today. And uh, all right, to the listening audience, thanks again, thanks again for listening. And if you have a topic you would like to have us discuss or comments or feedback, please either log on to www.paulbryanroach.com, that's Brian with a Y, and click on the About and Contact page, or send your questions directly to letters at paulbryanroach.com. This is Fixing Chicago. Thank you and good day.